missed the first part. Okay. If you, if you just wanted to start over again. <laughs> <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> this morning, of course, I'd like to return <laughs> to the med meditative cultivation unveiling of loving kindness. And to do so, I'd like to turn to the second of the four questions of the self-directed loving kindness, which is a very profound question. And the response to the question corresponds exactly to the profundity of one's own insight one's own understanding. And that is, in order to realize your innermost desires, your highest desires, your, most, your eternal longing, to use the Buddhist phrase, what would you love to receive from the world? How would you like the world to appear to you? How would you like other people to treat you? What would you like to happen to you? What would you like? What do you consider to be optimal? What would be the best of all possible worlds for you to be dwelling in? You see, that's going to be a tricky question, because you know you can have a really superficial answer. And so let's ask that question hedonically, because we care about our hedonic well-being. There's no question about it. I do. I think, you know, llamas, if they get ill, they take medicine. They like fresh food rather than stale food. If they have a choice, I think they'll choose. So let's answer that hedonically, just flat out hedonically. What would you really like in terms of the people around you, the environment, and what is rising up to meet you? I can tell you my answer. I'd like to have the whole environment totally beautiful, incredibly beautiful. I'd like to be beautiful. I'd like to be young. I'd like to be beautiful in every possible way. I'd like the people around me to be beautiful in every possible way. All the women young, sorry. <laughs> but of course, I want to be young too. I, no geezers here. I don't want to be a geezer. I don't want any other geezers. You know, they're kind of a bummer. Seeing all that gray hair and the wrinkly, wrinkly, wrinkly. I don't like that. So, you know, me young, everybody young, everybody beautiful, everybody sweet and virtuous and kind. And I want to have lots and lots of good food and never get fat. <laughs> and beautiful music, and lovely fragrances. You know what I've just described is a deva realm in the desire realm, where everything is just peachy, just like I described. And just every day you just enjoy, and, and, and somebody asks you, how was your day? Wonderful. And how was yesterday? Wonderful. And how do you think tomorrow is going to be? Great because this is just what I wanted. This is just what I wanted. Everybody's so kind to me, and I'm kind to everybody else, and everybody's gorgeous, and I just, I just love it here. I never want it to end. And you know, that is total stagnation. It is total stagnation. You've just found a nice little sweet spot in the ocean of samsara that seems to be made of ambrosia, and you're going nowhere at all. There's no maturation, there's no wisdom, there's no compassion, there's no patience, none of the six perfections. Uh, the virtue is kind of like easy, and it's really pleasant, 
and you may as well be dead. Spiritually, you're going nowhere. You may as well be dead, right? And that's what we like, right? That's, or at least, if we can't have that, well, okay, let's have our best approximation here and now, right? Let's find that place that is really, really nice and surround, our pla- uh, surround ourselves with people who are really, really nice and let's try to keep this body looking as young and healthy as possible for as long as possible uh, and let's not think about you know, it turning out otherwise. Um, so this one view. It's spiritually very, very childish. And it's one of those things, number one, it's not going to happen. Number two, if it did, that could be even worse. Because you're completely dead in the water. You know? You're resting in peace in a little teaspoon of sugar. Uh, and you've lost everything. And it feels so good. And so we say, okay, well, that's pretty clear. I mean, as much as we'd like it, with our wisdom eye, we say, well, I'd like it, but I don't want to like it. I don't want that to be my priority. Even if it were possible, even if that could be eternal. Eternal, everybody's young, everybody's having sex and party and good food and etc., etc. You can consider, if it could be eternal, would you want it? If it could be, considered, would you really want it? And that would not, imagine it would never get boring, because it probably would. But imagine it wouldn't. So we're going to make, we're going to optimize, we're going to make the perfect deva realm that never gets boring and goes on forever. And that's just standing back and viewing this with the eyes of wisdom. Do you want it? If somebody could just say, okay, you really want it? Because it's going to be eternal. And it's a one-way choice. You can't undo the choice, because that's what eternal means. Would you like to be forever young and beautiful, surrounded by lovely young and beautiful people, enjoying every single day, surrounded by sensual pleasures, and really liking it forever? Would you like that right now? I'm about to snap the fingers, yes or no, quickly, quickly, quickly. Okay, make your decision. You know? All right. Very limited, yeah? So, happily, that's not the only choice. Eudaimonia, a path of awakening, a path of transformation, of growth, a growth of virtue, a deepening of bliss, a deepening of wisdom, a deepening of compassion, a deepening of all virtues, and the virtues not being simply self-contained within your youthful, vast body, but actually that is within your own pristine awareness, and that youthful, vast body is a symbolic synonym for pristine awareness, not simply filled to overflowing with your own immutable bliss, but flowing out in the most meaningful of all possible ways. If we envision the good life, the good earth, the good environment, the perfect environment, perfect companions, perfect teachers, perfect teachers, spiritual teachers, and so on, what would you envision now? And the point here is that there is a reality to us being sentient beings. That's not a non-reality. It's not a complete psychotic fit. It is meaningful. It's called a relative truth. That yes, that is a truth. And now we see from Dzogchen, from Vajrayana in particular, it's not the only truth. As we had so succinctly and mysteriously in that first instant before there's any differentiation, even the differentiation of the words of samsara and nirvana, we saw 
two ways of phrasing that yesterday. On the one hand, there's the activation of the energy of primordial consciousness that casts forth the light of primordial consciousness into appearances. And the appearances are of the five Buddha families, the five uh, Buddha, Buddha fields corresponding to each Buddha family. The appearances are illuminated by the five facets, like a diamond with different facets, illuminated by the five facets of primordial consciousness, often called the five wisdoms. I think this is actually much closer to say the five facets of primordial consciousness. There's that pure vision, and seeing those pure visions from the perspective of primordial consciousness, you recognize them all as your own appearances, and they come and they draw back in, and you're completely awake, and you are perfectly enlightened Buddha. But then we saw in the other accounts, again from Dzogchen, Dzogchen specifically from the sharp Vajra of Conscious Awareness Tantra, and then it's more elaborated in the Vajra essence, you were resting in that undifferentiated unawareness, undifferentiated, that is, that is not even a differentiation of substrate consciousness and substrate, of subject and object, undifferentiated because it's unknowing. And therefore, even the words substrate and substrate consciousness have not yet arisen. And then there's an activation of, from this perspective, not the energies of primordial consciousness, but from this perspective, the karmic energies. And they set in motion, they break the symmetry of that homogeneity of unknowing into substrate substrate consciousness. And now we have, in a very primal way, an object and a subject, right? And then that continuum can, carries on with this, this impure vision, the grasping, the coagulation of a sense of self, the activation of mentation, and then the appearances, the specific recognition of different appearances, and then the conceptual labeling, and then the total freeze, the deep freeze, and the deep freeze is reification. The mere labeling is simply differentiation. But having labeled, then we, we have that sense, but the label belongs to the object. It already was what I called it. It already is what I conceived it to be. It's already there. And that's when your whole system freezes. But you see, these are the same processes viewed from two different perspectives. Viewed from perspective of pristine awareness, where you are awakened in an instant, and the other one where you are deluded in an instant without doing anything wrong. That is, no, met, no negative, no, no vices, no non-virtues, no killing, stealing, lying, and so forth, just in an instant with that dualistic grasping of the reification of appearances being other, everything being other, dualistic grasping, I'm really over here, you're really over there. Then you have now a continuous stream of appearances arising. And from one perspective, this is the whole deal, from one perspective, in terms of just the raw data, the raw information, which is appearances, that's what information is. It's appearances, whether it's auditory, it's olfactory, gustatory, tactile, visual, and so forth. Appearances arising. What's up with that? Where's that coming from? This is simply the activation, the ripening of karmic seeds. As you sow, so shall you reap. That's what we turn to raw appearances. That's coming from our own past. Nobody did to us, not God, angels, devils, demons, nobody else. 
we are seeing, we're looking into a mirror of our past. We're looking into the mirror of our past. There's an aphorism in Tibetan, if you want to know your past karma, look at your body. If you want to know your future, look at your mind. So, from one perspective then, appearances arise and sometimes they're tragic. One woman wrote to me just yesterday, and a friend of hers, apparently a very lovely couple, and the woman, the wife, and they're not, they're not very old, I think, and the wife is dying from cancer, and the treatments seem to be more, even worse than the symptoms of the cancer itself, and it's metastasized, and it's just one agony to another agony to another agony. And there is no way out. There just seems the cancer is so far developed and it's so permeated the body as a replacing one part. It seemed like this desperation to prolong her misery in that body for as long as possible. Replacing this part, replacing that part, replacing this part, more operations, more operations, more, but it's metastasized, you know, and so difficult for her. And then for her husband, just oh, hard to imagine. Karma ripening, appearances are ripening. Appearances arising. Who can say that is not a truth? You're an idiot if you think that. If one not is not if one does not acknowledge that is a truth, karmic ripening. Is it adversity or is it felicity? Well, I chose that one because it's it's not an easy call. No one's laughing there. No one's thinking, oh, it's just your karma. You know, as kind of a flippant comment. But is the adversity of that, and truly it is a, a tragic situation, that's true, is it inherently a tragic situation? Inherently? The answer is no. The appearances arising, those I just described, the appearances arising, how do you conceive of it? How do you designate it? Might this itself be an avenue, and, and albeit a very difficult one, very painful one, but might it be an avenue to your own maturation, to deepening compassion, to insight, to freedom? Might it be? And that's your choice. So when we conceive of what environment would we love to be dwelling in, surrounded by what kind of people, and treating us in what way, what's your vision? Are you still veering towards the Deva realm? If so, Oh, if you are still clinging to samsara, the good part of samsara, Deva realms and the desire realms, good part, happy part. If you're still longing for that, wishing, oh, Dharma is so difficult, samsara, shamatha is really difficult, I wish, oh, I wish I could just have a whole bunch of happy days then you don't have renunciation. There's really not much point in practicing shamatha. It's not for people, really. You don't need to practice shamatha to take birth in a deva realm. You don't need it. So you might as well quit. Why don't you just quit? And just be virtuous. Be virtuous, be generous, dedicate your merit to being born in a deva realm. And leave me alone, because you don't need me for that. You really don't. I'm not angry or rebuffing. I'm just saying, I'm useless to you. I have nothing to offer you. Be virtuous, be good, be generous, pray to be born under the realm, and let me go back to my meditation hut because I'm busy. Right? 
So when you're evaluating your days, when you tell me how the week has gone, I'll tell you there are two ways you can approach that topic. You can describe your week to me hedonically, and that's how it has risen to meet you. Was it pleasant, unpleasant, challenging, or easy? And quite a few of you are still telling me, oh, I had a difficult week. Why? Well, this day went really bad, and then I had this dream, and I had this experience, and so forth. And so my quiet, my mind, the question in my mind is, oh, would you rather have had it just to be a purely pleasant week? Is that what is a good week? In other words, would you like to be practicing in a deva realm? In which case, what are you talking to me for? You don't need me. And another way of evaluating the week is what did you bring to the world? That is, when difficulties arose, what did you bring to the world? How did you conceptually designate it? How did you transform those appearances into nourishment for your spiritual practice, for your spiritual path? Tell me how the week went in terms of how you responded to it. That's how the week really went. And the rest is just fruition of old karma. So envision again, in light of the fact that there is a truth to the statement we are sentient beings, and there is a truth to the statement that there is a path to freeing ourselves from obscurations, either very quickly or very slowly, one way or another, myriad paths, in light of all of that, now consider again, what kind of a world would you like to be living in, insofar as you still think that you're a sentient being, if you've completely outgrown that, and you're dwelling constantly in your own rikpa, and you're seeing all appearances as nothing other than pure displays of pristine awareness, which are tuje kunyap, all pervasive compassion, if that's where you're already dwelling, dwelling in your own dharmakaya, and seeing all phenomena as being simply displays of dharmakaya, you don't really need to listen to anything more I have to say. I would just smile at you, give you a hug, and say, I'm so happy for you. And now simply rest in inactivity, in your own pristine awareness, and let the rest of the path unfold. You know. And once again, I'll go back to my meditation hut, because I will have done everything I need to do. Right? But for those of us in between, those of us who are not simply aspiring for a deva realm, and I don't think anybody here is, those who are, there's one, in which case I'm, you don't need me, on the other hand, those who are already simply dwelling as vidyadharas in your own pristine awareness. Uh, thank you for humoring me. <laughs> <laughs> it's very nice to have you here. Uh, please, ra- please raise your hand so you know, I, can, I can know who, who's the spy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which one is the emanation of his holiness checking up on me to see how I'm doing? <laughs> who, who's the mole? <laughs> you know? For the, rest of us, for the rest of you who are in between, not just hooked on hedonic, not already arrived in resting on pristine awareness, then we're taking two realities seriously. We're taking seriously the reality that we're on the path, we've not come to the culmination of the path, and we'd like to proceed along that path as swiftly as possible. Right? So from that reality, and 
and we go into meditation, we go into pristine awareness, that is, pure vision, our best approximation, we come out, and so forth. What's your vision? What's your vision of how you would love people to treat you? Would you love everybody to be always nice? No friction and no illness. Well, you know, you know it. We're immediately heading off to the Deva realm again. So where are these pure realms? Where are the pure realms? Sukhavati in the West. Okay, that's what it's always said. But Padmasambhava in the Vajra, Vajra essence, he's almost kind of like laughing his head off at this point. I mean, it's, it's wonderful how he an- analyzes, when he analyzes the five Buddha fields of the five, of the five the Buddha families, with one in the center and one in each of the cardinal directions, Sukhavati being in the West. He said, you know, it goes through each one. And he said, they say it's in the West. But of course, don't take that seriously. It's not there. How far west do you think you'd have to travel? You know? And he's saying this 150 years ago in Tibet. You know? So don't take that literally. The Sukhavati, Dewa Chen, a place imbued with Dewa, which is Sukha, which is well-being. Uh, this is, to use my own words, this is, this is a dream of Amitabha. This is Amitabha's dream. And, he, and his prayers, he's saying, dream along with me. I'm having a dream, and I invite you. You may enter my dream. You may dream with me. You may enter into my dream. I will teach you in my dreams. That's my offering to you. That's my gift. That's how I'm dedicating my merits. I'm dreaming of Sukhavati. And you may join me if you wish. If you have faith, aspiration, bodhicitta, cultivating virtue, and you would love to join me, come, the doors open, Sukhavati. So who is Amitabha? Who is this awfully nice person? <laughs> who is this nice person, this red Buddha? Embodiment, personification of primordial consciousness, of discernment, of discernment. Whose? Whose primordial consciousness of discernment? Buddha Shakyamuni's, or maybe Padmasambhava? What's their number? Maybe we can speed dial them. You know. <laughs> Who are you? I'd like to, you know, it's awfully nice of you to create a Sukhavati. Please let me know. I, I want to send you a present. Some dark chocolate, probably. <laughs> <laughs> you figured it out. Amatabha is nothing other than a personification of this facet of your own pristine awareness. So how long do you have to wait before you could be reborn in Sukhavati? About as long as it takes you to adopt the perspective of Amitabha, to drop into your own pristine awareness and open your eyes. And suddenly, Gimpy, (laughs) Gimpy has dissolved into emptiness, the karma that threw you to Gimpy, <laughs> called, of course, Gimpy Karma, has dissolved into emptiness, and out of emptiness you open your eyes, and you're surrounded by the pure realm of Sukhavati. What's it look like? What does it look like? The beautiful descriptions of it. But does it really look like mm, a desire realm, deva realm? In which case, how is it different? 
for us as sentient beings, we need to encounter unpleasant people. Otherwise, where does renunciation come from? We need to encounter suffering. Otherwise, where does compassion come from? We need to encounter appearances that are deceptive. Otherwise, where does insight come from? And all the perfections. We need to be in an environment engaging with people who treat us in a myriad of ways so that the obscurations of our own minds become evident. And how do they become evident? That person over there is so selfish and arrogant. I can't stand that person. Always uppity, always arrogant, always a sense of entitlement, never takes any responsibility, quite stupid, can't stand that person. That, that, that person, that person over there, in that chair right back there, that empty chair. Can't stand that person. Can't even stand a thing. I don't want to communicate with that person anymore. That person is just disgusting. Disgrace to the human race. Hello, me. The part of me that I find most difficult, most appalling, most uncomfortable with. Can't stand it. There. Hello. Is there any hope for you? Is there any hope for you? You just seem kind of rotten to the core. You you seem quite hopeless. Is there any hope for you? And you've just asked whether there's any hope for you. Because that's what we just said. Is there any hope for you? Right? So, in the teachings on bodhicitta, there's said to be, poetically, three types of bodhicitta. I've known about it for a long time, but I had a different perspective on it this morning. Uh, I heard about this 40 years ago. Probably must have been from Gishingon Taige, because he taught me everything. He taught me the whole path. And so the first of these, and all of these, this bodhicitta, these images, these, the images, the poetry of it, is all designed, of course, to overcome self-centeredness. The sense of my well-being being more, more, more important than anybody else's. And so the first of these is the shepherd-like bodhicitta. Remember that? Shepherd-like bodhicitta. The shepherd takes care of his flock and he makes sure they're all bedded down and fed and safe. And everybody, every single one of them, no strays left out there where the wolves could get them. The entire flock, you've counted them all. You're all here. You're all safe. You're all home. Everybody's okay. All right. Then I can go back to my cabin and I can, I can have my porridge. But you take care of all of your sheep first. So the shepherd-like bodhicitta. And this is the aspiration as you look out upon the world of sentient beings. I shall liberate all of you. I shall bring all of you to freedom. All of you to awakening. And when you're all free, then, and only then, will I achieve enlightenment. This absolute reversal, absolute cosmic reversal of self-centeredness. Absolute other-centeredness that I will liberate you all. And however long it takes, that's a hundred billion galaxies according to modern science. Okay, whatever, I made my promise. When you're all free, then I will step across and I will, I will be free too. That's one vision. But then a second one is, whoa, uh, actually I'll be more effective if I go with you. If I go with you, if we're holding cans, if we're together. So I'll go with you. But I'm going to bring all of you together. It's like, 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 a, like a shepherd who's going to take his flock out to new pastures 
Well, he doesn't just send them, send them you know, good luck, it's it, that way. Actually, it goes with them, right? Well, the image here is we, we leave the image of the shepherd, and we go to that of a navigator, a navigator on a ship. And the navigator takes everybody on board and say, okay, we're going to cross to the far shore, and I will guide you. I will be navigating. I'll be, I'll be in charge here. I'll guide the ship. But we're all going to get there together. One for all, all for one, but all getting there together, and I will navigate, I'll navigate for you. All right. So that sense of, okay, well, here we are all, all together. Right? And then a thought comes up, that might be not so practical because, of course, the whole idea of becoming Buddha is that you're optimally effective, infinitely effective, to lead all sentient beings. And so in that case, oh, then I just better be really snappy. I need to be as fast as I can. I need to achieve enlightenment quickly. Because it will be from that platform that I can most effectively lead all of the sentient beings. Not as an eight-stage bodhisattva or a ninth-stage bodhisattva, let alone a person who hasn't even achieved the path at all. Uh, that's kind of wimpy or gimpy or whatever you want to call it. It's kind of like, <laughs> that's not very effective. And so therefore, I, I, have to, I have to go absolute max out, all in, total dedication. I need to become enlightened as quickly as I possibly can so that I can really effectively do whatever is needed. Know what are each individual sentient beings? What are their needs, abilities? What is the perfect teaching for each one? What's the best for each one? Only a Buddha knows that. And so then you adopt the king-like bodhicitta. King-like bodhicitta. So I've known about that for a long time. Think about dreaming. Who appears in your dream? You, of course. In your multiple faces. Everybody you meet. You could meet Nazis, you could meet racists, you could meet Shovadins, you could meet saints, you could meet, the, you could meet the Buddha, you could meet animals and reptiles and pretas and hell beings and devas, you could meet all kinds of creatures. Whatever you can draw from, you know, from your palate, from your memory, you could meet a very wide variety of sentient beings. You could, you could, you could meet a Buddha, the, the, the appearance of a Buddha. Of course, they are all you. So consider this. Imagine that you've really purified your mind very deeply. And you've actually, you're far up on the paths. You're up, you've achieved the path of accumulation, for example, where you're seeing your guru as a Buddha. You actually see a Buddha when you see your guru because your mind is so pure. What kind of people do you think would appear in your dream when you have that kind of purity? And I don't know, because I'm totally ordinary myself, but I'm going to imagine that the kind of beings you would see in your dream would be relatively pure. And then you become an Arya Bodhisattva. And in your dreams, they're going to be very pure. You'll be seeing Buddhas, Buddha fields, Bodhisattvas. You're going to be seeing, you're going to have very nice dreams. And as you continue on, and you continue to dream, there are, everybody in your dream is an expression of your own mind, which is becoming incredibly pure. Until it said, a Buddha no longer dreams. He said a Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni in the Pali Canon, said the Buddha doesn't dream. Doesn't dream. Doesn't fall asleep and go into a dream state. This is the Buddha's dream. From a Buddha's perspective. This is an ocean of samsara of misery from a sentient being's perspective. So in our loving-kindness practice, which we're going to get to momentarily, 
we'll practice settling the mind in its natural state, and then moving from there, we'll move into just open awareness to the space of the mind, to this dharmatatu, that is the field of your mental experience, of mental objects, and you'll see whoever comes to mind. Whatever comes to mind will be an expression of your own karma. That is, it's not to say there aren't other sentient beings, of course they are, but what appears to your mind is all painted with the colors of your mind. They are your reality, your appearances. And some of them may be, appear very nasty, mean, angry, etc., etc. Whoever they are, some neutral, kind of boring, other ones really lovely, attractive, virtuous, kind. And of course the whole idea here is to wish them all well equally. But as we, as we take this into Vajrayana practice, we are imagining them with each outbreath, becoming pure, finding the happiness, they, finding the joy, finding the virtue, achieving perfect awakening, like in a time-lapse film, seeing it all taking place. And suddenly in your mind's eye, the people who have treated you the worst, the people who have been neutral, the people who are kind, the evil people of history, the saintly people of history, they're all appearing now in this pure vision. You imagine them all finding or realizing, actualizing their eternal longing, and you've purified your dream. And you've just become the shepherd. You've purified everyone else. And now that your dreams are entirely populated, by enlightened beings. You can wake up. Or you can enter into that dream lucidly. This loving-kindness meditation, knowing full well it's happening. And as you're imagining all beings finding greater, greater, greater purity and coming to perfection, your own self-concept, equally together with them, the same plane, the same platform, the same mind, that you're all coming to perfection simultaneously. Or you may do as as in our devotions, in the seven-line prayer. You may be the king, the all-creating sovereign Padmasambhava. You may purify yourself first, and then from that perspective, invite all sentient beings and seeing how they appear to themselves. And often that's pretty dark. Seeing how they perceive, appear to themselves as you exchange self for other. And you're coming back to your own perspective. You're the king, the king like bodhicitta. And now help them wake up to what you see, because you see them in their purity and you're the king-like bodhicitta. So that was a different view on those three parables I've known for 40 years. I'm finding this retreat very helpful. Things come up that have not come up before. And so we end on the note. Where would you like to live and what kind of sentient beings would you like to be with? Mine? Oh, no, mine's here. Thank you. <laughs> this one's in mine. <laughs> Those, nothing special. <laughs> this one's filled with treasures. Consider, though, again, deeply. 
Where would you really like to live? What would you really like to be doing? And what kind of people would you really like to be surrounded by? And make it wise. Because where you are could be Sukhavati. That fast. There is a choice. And so, one of the most famous lines in poetry, in a poem that I find otherwise, I just glance through it, very obscure, but this one line leaps out. It's been quoted probably a million times. Robert Browning, from the poem Andrea del Sarto. Ah, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for? You reach as you venture into the world of possibility, should extend beyond the grasp of your world of actuality that you grasp onto, label, and reify here and now. Your imagination go, should go beyond that. Else, what is your imagination for? But then, else, what's a heaven for? And what's your heaven? That went on much longer than I expected. I'm happy with it. Um, but I'd like to kind of keep our schedule, because there's something to keep in getting something regular. So what I'd like to do is we'll just do our devotions. We'll settle the mind. And then we'll leave. Okay? We'll leave. Go to your own place, outside, inside, wherever you like, and continue practicing, because you know exactly what to do. Settle your mind, and then whoever comes up, be the shepherd, be the navigator, be the king, and cultivate loving kindness for all beings. Namo lama deshe dupe ku kunjo sumge ranjin la datando du semjenam chanju badu kapsu chi. Namo. In the Lama, who is the embodiment of the Sugatas, of the nature of the three jewels, I, together with the beings of the six realms, take refuge until our enlightenment. Semkendo kundundu lama sangye dupne ni Kangla kandu tinle kindoa doa damchao. For the sake of all beings, I generate the spirit of awakening and cultivate the realization of the Lama as Buddha. By means of enlightened activity, I shall train each being according to their needs, and I vow to liberate the world. Om 
여기 육근육참삼배마게사 롬보라 얌생조기 모두니에 배마주네 시수다 고두간도 맘부고 개기 제수 다두기 징길납치 식수수 Guru Pema Siddhi Hum Hum In the northwest frontier of Odiana, in the heart of a lotus, sits the one renowned as Padmasambhava, who achieved the wondrous supreme city and is surrounded by a host of many dakinis. Following in your footsteps, I devote myself to practice. Please come forth and bestow your blessings. Guru Pemasiti Hum. So to the best of our ability, let's sustain the, the sense of the indivisibility of our own minds with that of the Guru Padmasambhava and continue in practice. <laughs> 